Hey, good morning and happy Friday, everybody. This is Trevor Hall with Mining Stock Daily, and this is your end of the week long form episode. I was really curious about what was happening in the Australian resource markets. Are they coming up with the same bear cases we're seeing here on the Western side in the U.S. and Canada? So I reached out to a newsletter writer specifically writing on resources and junior mining, and his name is Gavin Went. He writes the Mine Life newsletter. We had a long conversation regarding uh, sentiment in, on the Australian markets within junior mining. And then we kind of broaden it out a little bit and really talk about because Australia is such a massive commodity producer and the world continues to see deglobalization, what is Australia's role going to be moving forward? Uh, so we open up a big topic of conversations with Gavin. I really appreciated having him on. Special thank you to Arizona Sonoran Copper, Fireweed Metals, and Western Copper and Gold for their continued support of the podcast. Uh, as you can tell, we're sitting on YouTube and also on the podcast network. So if you could hit that like, subscribe, all that fun stuff, maybe share it with a friend. Uh, it'd be greatly appreciated. We thank you for that. Right, let's jump into my conversation with Gavin. Have yourself a wonderful weekend, everybody, and be well. Hey, everybody. Welcome into Mining Stock Daily. This is your Friday long-form episode here on MSD. I'm your host, Trevor Hall. Uh, you know, it's a lot of people understand that we do not cover much, if at all, the Australian Securities Exchange in the resource sector uh, from the great country of Australia. Uh, we're going to kind of check in, actually, for this long-form episode because there's a number of things happening. Uh, I want to know if it's the same sentiment in Australia equities as it is in North America. I also want to know how uh, Australian resource investors are watching the big moves uh, in the big boy producers and miners as well. So I'm happy to welcome in Gavin Went. He is the publisher of a newsletter called Mine Life. You can find his website, minelife.com.au. And he's a uh, first time guest, obviously. So Gavin, welcome to Mining Stock Daily. Thank you. And it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Yeah, this is a, it's been a couple of weeks in the works here, so I'm glad we could finally uh, get this done. But Gavin, just, uh, you know, just for some, you know, let, let's talk about introductions here. You know, who is Gavin Went and what is Mind Life? What, what are you all about? Okay, well, I've been an equity analyst uh, here in Australia, covering predominantly Australian resource stocks and typically resource stocks at the smaller end of the market, the junior end of the market, as we tend to refer to it. And uh, the junior market in Australia is, is very, very strong, and it has been for a long, long time. It's one of the, I think, uh, one of the rather unique aspects of our share market, and in particular, the resource sector. Uh, I know places like Canada, of course, have a very, very strong junior market, and uh, but there's not a lot of equity markets around the world that have that strong focus on junior companies. So I've been doing that for more than 25 years. Uh, I also follow developments in the commodity space and equities internationally, so long as but uh, so long as they're in the uh, the resource space, I, I I know my strengths and I also like to know my limitations as well. Are, so, what are specific type of 
exploration, junior exploration that you focus on? Are you metals agnostic or do you focus on a specific metal? I'm commodity agnostic. So for my readers, and I write a, uh, a, a newsletter, a daily newsletter, we pretty much cover everything uh, because there's always interests in the breadth of, of commodities. So we're talking about bulk commodities, iron ore and coal, uh, precious metals. Gold, of course, is, is probably the most exciting and uh, where the most interest lies, but we also cover the, the platinum group metals and silver. Uh, energy of of all forms, in particular oil and gas, uh, which isn't going to go away anytime soon. And we also look at uh, some of the strategic uh, minerals, things like cobalt and lithium and, and rare earths as well. So uh, everything's everything's up for grabs as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, what got you started in here? It wasn't any of your mentors capable of saying the junior resource sector was maybe not a great place to spend the rest of your life? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I'm causing great hairs. Absolutely. I don't think anybody that's involved with the junior end of the market escapes uh, without grey hair. But it is a very exciting place to be. And of course, it's very volatile. As, as we know, share markets around the world, equity markets are volatile at the best of times, and they seem to have become more volatile over the last 20 years. Uh, when you look at the resource space, that's even more volatile again. And when you look at the smaller end of the resource market, you know, it's volatility to the max, but that's also what makes it uh, exciting. And over the last five to six years, we've seen an incredible increase in not just positive sentiment with respect to the resource market in Australia, uh, but also, most importantly, what has accompanied that is the ability of companies, small companies, most of them exploration companies that don't generate their own income, the ability of those companies to actually raise significant amounts of funding. Now, probably over the last six to 12 months, that's uh, declined quite significantly as sentiment across the world has declined. Uh, there's been a pullback in terms of funding for all companies. But generally, the last five to six years have uh, been very, very positive as far as the resource space here is concerned. There's kind of a tale of two cities going on here. Uh, you observed, you, you've mentioned the lack of capital in the exploration sector. Uh, but for many years, Gavin, we've been talking about how little investment the resource sector have actually, has actually had. And we're kind of coming up into a, a crunch time here where these resources that we expect to have just aren't going to be as readily available because of decades of uh, lack of investment on this side. And here we are in a macroeconomic, a global macroeconomic environment where uh, people are holding on to their capital pretty dang tightly. Uh, risk is very off and therefore it's it's hurting the resource sector, specifically early exploration plays. So that's one side of the story. The second side of the story is that the major producers, the Newmonts, the Rio Tintos, the BHPs, you're starting to see them make moves and thinking 30, 40 years down the road. Um, you know, how do you how do you kind of approach this bifurcation within the mining sector? If we just stick with mining, how do you approach this bifurcation and communicate this to your readers, knowing that well if if the bigger companies continue to move forward, so must we, and, and really get through the slog of a uh, really volatile macro environment. 
It's a really interesting point that you raise and uh, you're 100% spot on. Uh, of course, with the, I think what's exacerbating it, of course, and it's happened since COVID where government spending has seemingly focused on, uh, it's referred to as renewable energy spending, but a lot of, uh, uh, I don't like to refer to it that, I like to call it alternative energy because a lot of it isn't renewable. I mean, it sounds great, the sun and wind, etc., uh, and wave energy, but uh, th- that's nice conceptually. It's nice and green and fuzzy, but uh, of course, you have to have significant amounts of uh, materials and infrastructure to capture that energy and turn it into a reality to feed it into our electricity systems and, and power our homes and businesses. And that's what people forget about in terms of oil and gas being replaced and coal being replaced with uh, alternative energy we're looking at a 10 to 15 times upscaling in mining so a lot of the green groups that are talking about the environmental negatives of fossil fuels uh, seemingly ignore the environmental negatives of uh, the increase in mining that's going to take place and uh, there are significant roadblocks of course these days it's harder to develop a mine anywhere in the world even before esg came along so there's this uh conflict between the need for more materials uh, and let's face it the world is on a growth path anyhow uh, in terms of its consumption but it's now going to be maxed out by this move to uh, alternative energy so what you're saying is absolutely right and for decades there has been a lack of uh, investment in new commodities. Uh, That's inescapable. If we look at copper, which is a really good example because it's always referred to as Dr. Copper, it's a litmus test for growth. Uh, Over the last 40 years, we've seen uh, a significant drop-off in the number of new discoveries and also new mines being commissioned. And that's a direct result of companies becoming more conservative and uh, spending less money on exploration. And effectively, exploration is R&D for a resource company. So if you pull back on your R&D during tough times, that's limiting uh, your business in the future. And we've seen that right across the industry. And the mining sector over the last 20, 25, 30, 40 years even, uh, has in many instances been, unfortunately, uh, a, a significant destroyer of value. Uh, we've seen companies, major companies, as you referred to them, uh, acquiring projects and getting very aggressive with respect to corporate transactions, often at the wrong time, often at the peak of the market. Uh, oftentimes you can pick a peak in the market by how active some of these major miners are. You know, we've seen for example, in Australia, BHP Billiton, or BHP as it's referred to now, but BHP Billiton back in the day and Rio Tinto, between them, uh, destroying probably tens of billions of dollars of shareholder value uh, simply because of the fact that uh, they were looking at transactions and, and doing deals at exactly the wrong time in terms of the market cycle. And that wasn't necessarily looking ahead. That, In a way, it was very, very, a very, very short-term mindset i.e. commodity prices are rising, we've got to be in this commodity. And uh, sometimes a lot of those transactions that they attempted were value uh, negative. They certainly weren't value accretive. 
So that's been the problem. And what we've also seen, fund managers have, have punished a lot of these companies, particularly in the gold space. Yeah, we see a lot of value destroyed 20 years ago in the gold space with similar corporate uh, activity. And as a result of that, companies became a lot more conservative and have become a lot more conservative. So it's been more focused on uh, generating profits, giving profits back to shareholders in terms of dividends, and not necessarily engaging in expensive corporate activity and bringing new projects on stream. That's been the lesson I think the companies have learnt over the last five to six years. That mentality is starting to change again. Uh, on the part of big companies because they are starting, we'd like to think, looking looking ahead. And if we're looking at a world of alternative energy, then we're right to, to expect big companies to start engaging in major exploration programs, major acquisitions, because, as we said, on average 10 to 15 times more uh, of these materials need to be found and mined over the coming decades if we're going to meet these alternative energy targets. So, yeah, at the moment where we are in terms of equity markets, companies are being punished, investors are taking money out. But what that effectively does is it probably exacerbates the problem because it just means that those discoveries aren't being found, uh, projects aren't being brought on stream, and it's going to contribute to an even greater price spike down the track. Let's talk about the differences between excuse me, the last cycle and this cycle and how companies are uh, behaving, I suppose. Uh, you know, the last, you mentioned last cycle, a lot of those big companies made poor decisions. And um, I wasn't a part of this business during that cycle, but I heard a lot of horror stories of, you know, major companies going in and spending a lot of money, more money than they should have for an exploration project or exploration company, downright acquisition. So that was obviously the top of the cycle. And we fast forward to where we're at now in wherever we are in in this commodity cycle. And maybe that's a good question to start off. Where are we at in this cycle? But it seems like it's early stage and these companies are maybe behaving a little better and taking a little bit less risk instead of making full acquisitions. They're taking strategic investments. Uh, they're taking small steps into these companies. And on top of that, they also have investment um, uh, competitiveness from OEMs that they're finding now too. And so is, is there a little bit of, um, is there, is there a competitive, uh, a competitive gauge there that they maybe wasn't there uh, 10, 12 years ago? I know that's a three part question, but I'll let you, <laughs> I'll let you do your best. <laughs> well, I think the acquisitions previously, a lot of them to do were to do with ego and size and big, being the, you know, the big kid on the block, no matter what commodity it was. And I think there was some unhealthy competition amongst some of the world's major miners in terms of wanting to have scale for scale's sake. And uh, that that led to some rather short-sighted moves. And, and look, maybe the acquisitions themselves weren't uh, without logic, but the prices that were, were paid for assets um, just weren't reasonable. I think companies this time around are being a lot more measured. We're seeing companies dipping their toe in the water. First, I think the structure of deals, as you've mentioned, that farm-ins and that sort of thing, certainly the prices that are being paid for assets are uh, a lot more reasonable 
so that they can be sh- uh, justified to shareholders into the market in a much more uh, positive way. Uh, previously, in previous decades across the mining sector, it really was about scale and size. And it wasn't so much about uh, project economics and investment returns. And we saw errors made by not only large companies, but I guess what we'd probably call tier two uh, mining companies, companies that were uh, had been very, very successful, if you like, in terms of perhaps making a discovery, perhaps making several discoveries, uh, turning those discoveries into commercial operations and running them successfully. But the market often demands, investors often demand uh, growth. And sometimes companies can go out of their way and start to put, uh, I guess, the the technical understanding that's uh, the sound principles that's gotten to them to where they are successfully. They can start to put those principles aside as they start to chase growth because uh, they that is expected of them. And sometimes it's not the right thing to grow. Sometimes it's absolutely fine just managing the assets that you've got as best as you can and generate the best operating margins that you can and give that money back to shareholders and not feel pressured to acquire another asset or to find another asset. Uh, And oftentimes that mindset will happen, uh, that pressure will ramp up at exactly the wrong time. When commodity prices are running very, very strongly, when there's a lot of money around, investors are, are pressuring companies uh, to uh, engage in acquisitions. And, of course, acquisitions are best done at the bottom of the market, not at the top. So sometimes even the best principled of uh, company management teams can get caught up in the hype. And I think that's the that's the most important thing is to always look for value. And sometimes those principles can go out the window when money is freely available. Uh, we sometimes forget about the fundamentals. And fundamentals tend to be adhered through uh, during the toughest of market cycles. But when we reach, uh, when greed is at its peak, uh, which it still seems to be at the moment, um, it's a situation where companies can sometimes make uh, very poor decisions. Do you, th- you, you think greed's uh, present at the moment? You really think that, huh? Uh, look, looking at some of the data that's coming out and some of the uh, information that I've read over recent days, you know, the investor sentiment is, is, is still quite high. I think those that are still in the market are still quite greedy. Uh, we've obviously seen... A, a significant amount of money come out of the market over the last six months, uh, probably last six to 12 months. There've been a lot of money made in the resource sector over recent years. And that can be problematic too, particularly when we're talking about, uh, for example, new listings, initial public offerings. Uh, I think one of the best indications of how greedy a market is and how close to a peak a market is are the numbers of new public offerings, new floats that are coming to market. And probably about two years ago, uh, we started seeing a plethora of junior companies starting to get listed here, new new offerings. And look, we've already, it's probably very similar to North America. 
there are already a lot of junior companies that are already established with projects, etc. My concern with these new offerings is it really has to be something unique. It has to be something significant to attract attention. When you've already got a lot of projects out there that require funding in listed companies, you've got management teams that are probably being spread very, very thin. You know, it's not just about projects, about people. And you start to question uh, the new companies that are trying to come to market. What have they got in terms of projects? What are they really offering? What are their management teams and boards of directors like? And I think it's fair to say that a lot of the, the new listings that have come to the market uh, haven't done as well, but but it's symptomatic of a market that uh, is in a euphoria stage, or certainly was about two years ago, and I think that's when the warning signs uh, were starting to be raised, that there's just too much hot money in the sector. It's looking for a home. Uh, there have been a lot of companies that have done well in terms of listed companies that have done well, and typically what happens is you have market participants that say, hey, let's start floating companies. Let's get those investors that have made money in in other listings to start funding and to start backing uh, new listed opportunities. And, and that works for a while until we start to reach a point where uh, the global economy might start to cool or we start to get we start to have issues with China, which is, of course is the world's biggest consumer of most commodities. And of course, then that's when sentiment in the resource space starts to turn. And when sentiment starts to turn, it, it, it starts first with the smaller companies. You know, and we start to see money coming out of the smaller end of the market really, really quickly. We, of course, start to see that with the larger companies. But there's been a significant change in sentiment over the last 12 months and we really haven't seen much in the way of uh new listings uh, in recent times. And it's it's been companies that have got something unique to bring to the table and meaningful that have been successful in becoming listed. Uh, do you have any examples you could provide of what that uniqueness looks like that is is bringing success right now? Despite uh, well, look, typically in terms of uh, geology and and potentially commodity, I mean, it's 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 always important to uh, to try and differentiate between neurology when a discovery is made and those companies that potentially just jumping on the on the bandwagon in terms of picking up acreage around a a, a significant discovery. I mean, a good example would be the Julemar discovery. Uh, platinum Group nickel copper discovery in Western Australia that was made by a very very junior company Chalice Mining here in Australia a couple of years ago back in 2021 and the company at the time was trading below 20 cents in share price terms. Um, it's now trading up around seven dollars and it's a rather unique discovery in terms of the Australian context. Now that wasn't a new listing, uh, but it had a very strong technical team and what we've seen. Uh, since that time is, of course, we've seen some uh, companies that have just picked up acreage on the basis of neurology uh, and, and hoping for a re-rating on that basis alone. Uh, but there have been some companies that have been the pipeline for a significant period of time that have also shared a similar positive view about geology and uh, those companies have successfully come to market. So I guess you could probably say rather... I'm looking at this in a positive way and saying, hey, some of the IPOs, some of the listings that come to market are on a sound technical basis in terms of an appreciation of an under, underexplored area. 
and uh, some of the work that might have been done there historically that uh, may not have been conclusive. And as we know, what's happening a lot these days is companies are going back to relatively unexplored areas like Chalice with Julimar, only an hour out of Perth, and uh, finding a world-class uh, platinum group metal uh, deposit. And some companies, other companies have also shared that vision and those are the companies that have been listed. So that's a really good example rather than just the neurology. I think also commodity-wise as well, what we're seeing in Australia, and I'm sure it probably coalesces with what's happening in North America, we're seeing a big focus on lithium, a big focus on rare earths. Some companies, of course, have have been well ahead of the curve and have uh, put together uh, new listings on that basis because perhaps an area or a geological province that hasn't previously been explored for lithium or rare earths, uh, and that's the basis of their listing. Uh, other companies, of course, are just uh, neurology plays, hoping to uh, be successful on the coattails of, of companies that are probably doing all the the significant and meaningful technical work. But I guess you get that in any market environment and it's up to investors to uh, put their technical hats on and be as astute as they can between sorting the wheat, the wheat from the chaff, as it were, in terms of uh, uh, you know, credible companies from the, the not-so-credible. You mentioned lithium, and I, I, while you were kind of answering that, I was thinking in the back of my mind about how Patriot Battery Metals started their dual listing on the ASX. And um, obviously that incredible boost of liquidity. And I'm just kind of curious, the timing of that, obviously that's a project that had great exploration success before the listing on the ASX. I mean, does, is that a good example of just really the, um, the hunger of an Australian resource investor and speculator wanting to have access to good projects anywhere in the world and, and really trying to get those companies, maybe they're trading in the Western half of the world, to actually come to Australia just to, so the Australians could have uh, their own liquidity in that in those equities. I think that's a good point. Uh, look, the history of Australian exploration is that we've uh, a lot of the funds have been invested here, uh, and a, a significant reason for that is that a lot of Australia. Pretty much all the states in Australia are very, very prospective for minerals. Uh, but at the same time, of course, there's always a feeling uh, that the grass is greener in other jurisdictions, and particularly as asset prices have uh, increased over recent times. Just a helicopter flying past here at the moment. Uh, but as no asset prices have increased and opportunities for junior companies to farm into good quality projects have gone up, particularly domestically, they are looking offshore. And investors uh, love here, love places like uh, North America, Canada, the United States of America, primarily because of uh, a lack of sovereign risk uh, the fact that if a company spends dollars on a project, they won't have a uh, the government taking the project off their hands. Look, unfortunately, there have been some negative experience with other parts of the world. We're talking about Africa and uh, and, uh, and and those sorts of places. You know, you in South America, you're never quite sure about uh, tenure, and so investors are increasingly looking at places like uh, here, United States and Canada, and we've seen a flood of junior companies 
for example, in the James Bay area, picking up uh, picking up projects there. And the other thing that's incentivized uh, investors is the attitude that both federal governments and provisional governments have had uh, in the United States and and Canada towards resource projects. You know, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act has tipped the balance to some degree uh, with respect to where Australian investors will spend their money. Because if you've got a lithium project in Australia and potentially that same lithium project uh, in the United States, uh, the financial incentives in the United States are significantly greater than what are offer here. So investors are rightly saying, well, look, let's back company A that's got a similar project in the United States rather than company B that's got almost an identical project here because there are incentives that are on offer there. Uh, the whole environment is a lot more favourable and uh, by definition, a greater chance of success, commercial success, backing the North American project than, uh, than maybe the Australian project. And maybe even if the chances of success are similar, um, things are probably going to be more accelerated in terms of that success timeframe in North America uh, than it is here in Australia. Yeah. Uh, there's another uh, story out there that's had a lot of success, and WA1 or WA1, and uh, the Niobium, pro- it's a Niobium project, isn't it? Uh, I mean, you can just kind of sense there's so little, I, I mean, I, I, I hate to say it, but there's so little success in exploration globally right now uh, that anytime we have a story, whether it be on the ASX or uh, the Venture Exchange or anywhere that people really want to start chasing those things because they are taking a lot uh, of the uh, of the limelight here. Uh, what... Can, can you follow us up with WA1 or however you pronounce that? Is it Wall one what, what they're doing and why they've had so much success with niobium? Are we in a niobium boom right now or is this just pure great exploration? Well, look, niobium is not a new commodity. Uh, it's sometimes referred to as a rare earth. And as we know, rare earths aren't rare. What's typically rare about rare earths is is actually trying to find them in commercial concentrations because the nature of the mineralization, the nature of rare earth deposits can be that they're quite potty and sporadic. And unlike uh, a gold operation where uh, things can be relatively straightforward when you make a discovery, a commercial discovery in terms of processing, etc., looking at a niobium or a rare earth deposit, there are a whole heap of potential unknowns once you make a discovery. And so you've got to look at things like metallurgy. You've got to look at consistency. In the case of rare earths, you've got to look in terms of commerciality at what are the key components? What are the key rare earth components? Uh, Because rare earths, all rare earths aren't valued the same. There's quite a significant disparity between the, uh, the various components. So uh, one rare earth deposit won't necessarily uh, stack up against a, another one's on the basis of uh, metallurgical problems, processing issues. Uh, the, the various constituent components can mean that one rare earth deposit is, is, is valued a lot higher than others. 
But in the case of uh, WA1, they've been very, very successful because they're essentially a new story. I mean, they're in Western Australia and across on the other side of Australia on the East Coast, uh, there was a company called, which is still around, Alcane Resources, and and, and they had a neobium deposit and it's being progressed uh, very, very aggressively and commercially and uh, it's on the verge of being funded. Uh, now, funding hasn't been secured yet, but uh, uh, the, all of the studies that have been done have uh, indicated that it's a commercial project. You're never quite sure with these sorts of projects until you actually get into production. And the nature of rare earths and neobium is that it's a rather opaque market when it comes to commodity pricing. So it's a market or a commodity that's very, very difficult to secure project funding, apart from all the, the potential technical issues, uh, which which aren't really relevant when you're a, a micro cap junior that's putting out fantastic expiration results. But as your market cap grows in size and becomes more significant, investors start asking these tough questions and they want meaningful answers. And you can provide answers all the step of the way at every step of the way through, but you're never 100% sure with these types of projects until you make it into production. And even then, it can be problematic and you can have issues uh, betting uh, projects down and, and achieving and maintaining consistent production. So we see a lot of these opportunities that do very, very well in the expiration stage and attract a lot of market interest. But then, of course, there's that there's that. Not we haven't seen it yet with WA one, but there is a, eventually a plateauing when a when a company reaches a significant market capitalization, and then the uh, they can go into this period where as we as sometimes referred to as a value valley, when a resource is established and studies are awaited, economic studies, whether it is a pre feasibility study or a feasibility study or a scoping study, because uh, oftentimes that just those studies just uh, confirm the value that's already been built into the share price. And then investors start saying, well, what's next? Um, And sometimes it can be difficult for companies to uh, provide that uh, uh, additional value. But just going back to my point, it it, it can be difficult to fund these sorts of projects because of all the variables and the production uncertainty and the rather opaque market out there, unlike gold or copper or, or nickel, uh, they're not LME traded commodities. Uh, there's not necessarily a transparent uh, market that's available. A lot of these uh, commodities are traded under contracts that are arranged between producers and end users. So for financiers, uh, there's an added level of risk there. But um, certainly we're seeing strong interest as far as uh, junior company investors are concerned in some of these situations. In those rare earth deposits, I mean, I just keep on thinking there's another, there's a, there's a deposit in the Midwest and here in the United States, a niobium deposit. And it's kind of been in the works for about 10 years now. Uh, But the capex to get this thing built in the last technical report was just mind-boggling high. Uh, don't the, do these projects typically have a massive capex just because of the processing required to separate and and refine those very fine those re, you know those critical elements? 
You're absolutely right, and yes, they do. And and that's another critical point uh, that needs to be made is that the capex of these sorts of projects, because of the complexity around the minerals processing and refining that's that's involved, they are technically very complex projects. And typically, complex projects uh, means uh, significant capex numbers, and of course. That will then impact um, rates of return. But even if it doesn't necessarily impact uh, rates of return on a project, it can add to the technical complexity, i.e. if you manage to get this thing into production, uh, the potential for something to go wrong or the potential for commissioning issues and, and, and maybe ongoing teething issues uh, uh, can be significant. So that is the big risk with these sorts of projects. And in the rural earth space, of course, just talking more broadly and going off on a bit of a tangent, uh, China has dominated the rare earth space throughout the world for probably about 50 years. And we've seen reasonably consistency consistently over the last 50 years, periods where the West has said, hey, we've got to change this situation. We've got to address it. Typically in the past, it's been when China has withheld supply and forced prices up, much like OPEC has previously done with respect to the oil price. And ultimately, end users start to get annoyed by this practice, being held to ransom and forced to pay higher prices. And they start to talk more aggressively about ending the dominance of China and potentially funding new sources of supply in the West. The the issue has always been that uh, prices are never to be fall, and those that have been grumbling about China having market dominance in rare earths, uh, the the bottom line for them is is prices everything. So as prices fall away, uh, the urgency for uh, new supply falls away, particularly when they know, the market knows that uh, China is a low-cost producer typically. Prices only rise when China want to raise prices. And rare earths is a very dirty business. The the mining and the processing is a dirty business. And if you want to do it in an environmentally friendly way, you're going to have to pay more. And end users in the past have not wanted to pay more for projects that can supply rare earths in an environmentally friendly way in the West. They'd rather buy the dirty stuff coming out of China at a lower cost. Uh, It's only now, probably in the last five to six years, as governments in particular, uh, we've got the strategic nature of uh, these these sorts of materials being used increasingly that uh, governments in particular are now stepping in and saying, hey, we're prepared to incentivise companies and we're prepared to subsidise alternate sources supply. But it's not an easy thing to do because whilst governments might have a view, ultimately the ESG industry is stronger than ever. Uh, And we've seen massive rare earth deposits, for example, in Greenland, one of the biggest rare earth deposits in the world. The Greenland government is very pro-green energy, but they're not necessarily that pro-mining. Uh, and so projects like that have not yet been developed. And I think we're going to see issues that with that throughout the West. Uh, a lot of people that say they're pro-renewable energy or alternative energy have got to, uh, you know, walk the walk, not just talk the talk. They've actually got to support mining projects 
in the West. But at the moment, there's a lot of NIMBYism, you know, not in my backyard. I love green energy or I love alternative energy, but you know what? I don't want to support mining because I don't like mining. It's a dirty industry. Uh, And there's there's that conflict. So people want to be seen to be green but they don't want to uh, fully commit to uh, the process that will allow re- renewable or alternative energy to happen. I like that term. They want to be seen to be green. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right about that because they care so much. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I was, and I'm not, I'm not a huge, obviously I'm not a niobium expert, but I would assume that if this project uh, on the Eastern side of Australia does you know get financed and permitted and built that it probably wouldn't take a whole lot of niobium to put put on the market to really fluctuate price and so i that, i guess maybe maybe it would take a lot of niobium but it just doesn't seem it's such a small market i i would assume that prices would come down anyway something i'm thinking about i i i kind of want to get big picture here and one of the things i've been really wanting to ask you uh, is Australian resources role going forward as the world changes? Uh, China is the largest, if not one of the largest consumers and buyers of Australian resources. And the world is obviously changing. There's these geopolitical tensions. Um, you know, we, we talk about deglobalization here in the West but that puts a really sticky spot for Australia as a source for a lot of what the world needs. What is the, what is the, how do people approach this right now in this, in this historical time where the cycle is changing, the political geopoliticalization of everything is changing and the world, I think it's fair to say in 20, 30 years is going to be a lot different looking then as it is now how is it how's the australians approaching all this right now gavin if i'm looking at this question from the perspective of australia's resource industry and our reliance on china as the world's biggest commodity consumer it's a really interesting one i mean australia has done really really well the last 20 30 years out of china uh, going back to probably around about the late 90s, early noughties, which is when China really started ramping up its purchasing of commodities in a major way, particularly things like ore, iron ore, when it kicked off its construction boom around about 2000. You know, iron ore prices back then were trading at around long term about $20, $30 per tonne. And uh, a couple of years ago, they got as high as, you know, 220 250 even up to $300 per tonne. They're still trading at about $115 per tonne. That's still well above the, the long-term price where they were for decades, around about $20 to $30 per tonne. So China is still important. And there's been the China factor uh, has played out with respect to a whole heap of commodities, not just iron ore. Iron ore is probably the most visible one. Um, and China is far and away the world's biggest uh, consumer and importer of, of iron ore, and Australia has benefited from that. But in recent years, Australia has had to learn to diversify uh, simply because of the political tensions between Beijing and Canberra. 
uh, that were brought on by in the aftermath, the direct aftermath of COVID, where the Australian government questioned some of the rhetoric that was coming out of China and demanded an investigation into where COVID originated from, China whacked a whole bunch of uh, restrictions on our commodity exports going to China, with the one exception, and that one exception was iron ore, because if China knew that if it banned iron ore exports, it would crucify their economy, because iron ore is central to construction, and China has typically used construction over the last 20 years to boost its economy, particularly when, through subsidies, when China's economic growth might slow down to levels that are less than ideal as far as the Chinese authorities are concerned. The easy mechanism to ramp up growth once again is to stimulate the property sector. So China didn't want anything that would jeopardise its property sector and hence it didn't want to jeopardise the flow of iron ore into China, both in terms of supply and also into pricing because if it banned Australian iron ore, it would struggle to get volume the other two big producers in the world, Brazil number two and South Africa number three, would not be able to supply volume and the price of iron ore would go through the roof. And that would, uh, of course, dramatically impact the margins of China's steel producers. So the long-winded way of saying that Australia has looked for alternative markets for a lot of its commodities uh, not just hard commodities in terms of resources, but also soft commodities, things like wine and agricultural products. India has been a major consumer of uh, China's, Australia's coal uh, over recent years and other agricultural products. And what's interesting is what we're seeing now is that uh, India's population has overtaken China. It's a much younger population. Really, it's looking more like a more dynamic economy than China is. China is sort of entering that phase where it's looking a little bit more like Japan uh, rather than the dynamic sort of growth engine that it was 20-something years ago. And so relationships between Australia and India, for example, are stronger than they ever have been. And agreements in terms of the supply of commodities are more significant and we're supplying more commodities to India than we ever have. So the China situation has been really useful for Australia in terms of foreign exchange and having a, a, a stable buyer of our commodities. All of a sudden, stability got that stability got impacted a few years ago, but the resource sector has been very quick to adapt and evolve. And in a way, it was a blessing for our resource sector, what happened with respect to China, because it's forced our, our economy in terms of our exports to seek out uh, uh, alternative markets because the feeling always was what happens if China falls over? Now, we need to diversify our exports and we, you know, we have essentially done that. Well, yeah, what happens if China falls over? But I guess another question is what happens when the West uh, really decides to put massive sanctions or weaponize resources against China? I mean, they'll be knocking on Australia's door and there will have to be, you know, I guess, what is the relationship between Australia and the United States look like as far as resources right now? Would there be some sort of discussion 
between the West and Australia about limiting the amount of resources or sanctioning the resources that they are currently selling to China. I mean, that'd be a hard sell to make because you'd have to find you'd have to find somebody else to take them. That China, oh, China it's an interesting question. I don't think it's going to get to that stage. What I think is going to happen, though, and we're seeing as a result of China's influence in uh, the South Pacific in the East. Uh, there's been a reaction to that. Now we're seeing uh, the South China Sea. We've seen a range of countries, Vietnam, the Philippines, uh, Japan, all reacting and, and coming closer to the United States. You know, exactly what China didn't want to happen in the Pacific, in Asia. Uh, China did not want an American presence in the Pacific and it wanted to reduce uh, American presence. And so China, by throwing its weight around, has generated exactly the opposite outcome. You know, South Korea, Japan, Vietnam, the Philippines, uh, South Pacific countries that were, that China was trying to influence uh, economically are coming closer to Australia and they're coming closer to the United States again. Uh, of course, the Taiwan situation as well. So the way that's that's working against China, and we've seen stronger military ch- ties uh, between Britain and Australia and the United States. We've also got uh, Australia, the United States, India and Japan working together uh, militarily. So what I see happening is Australia is in an ideal location, low sovereign risk. We want to develop our uh, critical minerals and we have natural buyers for those commodities within the West. Uh, if you look at Japan, still a major trading partner of Australia. India, increasingly a major trading partner. United States requires these strategic uh, materials and has got value-adding uh, processing onshore. I think Australia is in an, an ideal place and will increasingly sell more of its commodities to the West. Um, before we let you go here, Gavin, I, I do want to be cognizant of your time. Uh, just kind of curious if we can kind of get back to Australian equities, resource equities here. Um, you know, things are pretty dire, obviously, on this side of the pond, and uh, you express similar <laughs> concerns uh, in Australia. Is it more of a fundamental factor that might get things moving again or a technical factor regarding uh, things just being completely silly over bought and there's, um, you know, there's you people just the market comes in and starts buying the bottom here, or is it more of a fundamental where the macro just has to improve? Interest rates have got to be normalized, and people have got to have clarity. I think we need to have confidence back in the market, and the only thing that uh, will bring confidence back to the market will be. Uh, uh, Confidence that uh, we have emerged from a potentially recessionary environment. Uh, the other big aspect will be interest rates, because as long as interest rates keep uh, rising, money is going to stay on the sidelines, or at the very least, we might see some investors coming and dipping their toe in the water, but we're not going to see significant volumes of money coming back into the market. So we have to have those recessionary fears removed and we have to see stability, st- uh, I guess, stabilisation or stability 
on the interest rate front. Until we see that, uh, commodity prices really aren't going to go anywhere. We're going to see some trading and some speculation, uh, but we're not going to see any significant moves. We need to see money coming back into the market. Uh, China is also a key one. There was a lot of optimism in some quarters at the end of last year and the beginning of this calendar year that uh, China was emerging from its COVID lockdowns and everything was going to be fantastic and it was going to start consuming uh, commodities in a major way again. Its citizens were going to start travelling around again and using lots of oil. They're going to start flying and aviation fuel demand would go through the roof. It just hasn't happened. And every time China tries to stimulate its economy with various sorts of fiscal and monetary measures, the impact is nowhere near what the market might be anticipating. So even China itself has admitted that it's got an epic economic problem. And uh, they've, so they've tried all those things, all those things in the last couple of months, stimulate, right. you know, open up. Uh, COVID lockdowns are over. Then they they stimulate the thing. There was word of that a couple of weeks ago, and it still hasn't done anything. I mean, it's the big biggest blooper, macro blooper, I think I've seen in quite some time. Absolutely. And so when you've got the world's biggest commodity producer with an economy that really isn't going anywhere, that in itself is probably the biggest factor that will drive sentiment and ultimately money coming into the resource sector. Uh, now, in terms of what sort of time frame are we looking at in, with respect to recessionary fears easing, uh, interest rates stabilising, some con- level of confidence coming back into the Chinese economy, six to 12 months perhaps, it's really, really difficult to say. But what will probably start to happen at an equity level, at a company level, and this is where we, I guess you started out, the conversation is we are starting to see corporates themselves, mining companies big and in between, taking advantage of the market situation with respect to depressed commodity prices and depressed equity prices for some of those companies that are developing good projects but can't necessarily find project funding in this environment it's a buying opportunity for them because they know where commodity prices are going to go in five to ten years time and there is going to be that shortage so it is working in the favor of the big miners to look at corporate transactions to look at deals now so long as they make sense and so long as they're not overpaying and i guess if they're buying projects in this environment they are doing it at the top of the cycle Uh, at the bottom of the cycle, should I say, (laughs) rather than the top, which is typically where a lot of those decisions have been made in the past. Uh, I forgot to ask you, uh, I've originally heard of you, you did an interview with, I think it was Bloomberg, uh, when the news of the uh, Newmont deal with Newcrest was announced. And so that's how I first got exposed to your work and why I reached out. Uh, And so I I forgot, I got to ask you about this. I mean, are the Australians at all sort of, Sad to see uh, their great Australian gold producer being acquired here, or is the, you know, just another you know, check mark off the old uh, M and A list. Look, I think there's a certain degree of emotion associated with yeah. us. You know, uh, Newcrest was our biggest, far and away, our biggest gold producer, and mm. it was a multi mine operation. 
that had significant history. So I think there there logically is some degree of emotion attached to the company. There was also this feeling in the market, as there often is, that, well, Newmont got a bargain. Newmont... uh, Newcrest should have uh, should have attracted a, a higher uh, offer. Fund managers often say that, but ultimately, look, it's up to them if they believe a, a stock's worth more than they should be paying for it. But you know, if you have a look at where New, uh, Newcrest was trading in the market prior to the bid, uh, it, it presented an opportunity for uh, for Newmont to come in, and look, we've seen it in the Australian gold space previously. Normandy Mining was previously going back uh, 10, 15 years, twenty years—I forget now—was uh, our previous flagship number one gold company, and 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 that was taken over. So I think there's always this feeling that perhaps Australian gold companies. If you're trying to compare apples with apples, similar size companies, similar quality of operations will always be uh, trading at a discount, perhaps compared to similar North American operations. It's probably just how they're valued. So I think it shouldn't be a surprise uh, to investors here, uh, but it does provide that opportunity for, uh, for external investors to come in and acquire a company with, oper- with operations in very safe jurisdictions at perhaps a discount to uh, a similar company that might be operating elsewhere in the world. Uh, uh, time will tell if Newmont is prepared to be the largest gold producer in the world by you know twofold. Uh, that's the next challenge, and that's not a light challenge. It's it'd be a big deal. Uh, Gavin, thanks so much for your time. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on and, and giving us your insight. And I know I came with a lot of different questions for you, and, but you, you approached them all with a lot of thoughtfulness and I really, uh, there's a lot of value behind your words. How can people find you and maybe even read some of your work? Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I, I, I do thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to share my thoughts on what's happening here in Australia. Uh, investors, uh, anybody that wants to find out a little bit more about me and what I do, the best way is to go to uh, our website, which is www.mindlife.com.au. Uh, that's our website. They can find out all about me. Uh, they can reach out, and I'm very happy to answer uh, any questions. All right. Gavin, thanks so much. Have a great rest of your week. Fantastic. Thank you, and you too, and uh, goodbye to all your listeners. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.